I'm not a scientist. I have no political affiliation. I'm a casting instructor and I'm a fisherman. I run a business on the river. I've been salmon fishing for oh, 34 years, all my life. And I can't sit by and watch the whole thing go down the pan. I don't want to be the generation that sits by and lets this go down. Hello and welcome to the Ireland on the Fly podcast about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. This week we're turning our attention back to salmon. It's been a very tough year to say the least, not helped by the weather conditions and a dramatic fall off in the numbers of returning salmon. So will the grills run give us any hope at all over what's left of the summer? Connor Arnold is a guide on the Blackwater and he'll be joining us shortly to let us know. Well, first, Tom, it was a sobering, I think, kind of interview with Connor. Um, I really enjoyed it because kind of no nonsense, just told it as it is. And look, the truth is 2023 salmon anglers want to ride off yeah really was Dara you know I mean I always tried to be glass half full always strive for that but like you know Connor said it as it is for this season and yeah I think the word uh, was it sobering yeah um, yeah things aren't good you know it's you know there's no point in beating around the bush it's been a really poor year for salmon the figure Connor talks about what sorry, I'm trying to think of it. It was 80. So basically so, you said he was saying, so the last few years correspond, their catches correspond to about 30% of the average catch in the 70s and 80s, I think. Yeah. Okay. And they're 80% down on last year. 80% down from yeah. 2022. Yeah. Down on a year. That was 30% of what it used to be like in the 70s. That's a downward spiral. That's a, and he said it's falling off a cliff. It's, it's scary. It, like, it's, it's the only, like, and, and the more the season goes on, you heard the head of the United Nations talking about we've gone beyond climate change. We're now at climate mm. boiling. Mm. You know, and we kind of need to start using, I think, language like that when it comes to salmon now, um, that it's fallen off a cliff. I think we need to be using this kind of stark, stark language because it seems to be it's the only way that people are actually going to sit up and take notice. And fair play to Connor, he explains to us as well how he has taken action upon himself. He is writing to the politicians. He has met politicians. He's going to be meeting himself and uh, other anglers and other guides from around the country. They're going to be meeting Eamon Ryan in September. Like, it's brilliant to hear that they're actually doing something about it to try and say, look, enough is enough. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, he's got to do it. Um, We talked him why, and, you know, it was the tipping point. But also as well, I mean, like I say, I mean, we do this podcast. We, You know, it's, we're talking about fishing, and we, like, as we said, it's glass half full. I'm the type of guy I always like to be upbeat, always have, you know, good things to talk about. But, you know, this is something we can't deny, and it's something we can't just push aside, or as Connor says, you know, just go ahead and order another pint, you know. So, you know, we can't deny that it's fallen off a cliff. And I think it's, you know, we've got to talk about it as well. And not only us on the podcast, but other anglers among themselves. And I highlighted to other people as in, and you'll hear Connor saying it with the locals in an area where there's big salmon fishing, like they weren't aware of it, but they saw that the, the first salmon of the year coming at a certain time was, wow, that's really late. Uh, so we've got to talk about, we've got to make other people aware of it, uh, be they politicians, uh, or not, just you know, we have to highlight it. 
just hope it's not too late. Like I said, if they're saying it's fallen off a cliff this year, that it's not permanent in that sense. Um, but sometimes, do you know what? The, the, the drip, this, and this is, I think, part of the problem with climate change kind of in the last few decades was that it was kind of incremental. Like human mm. nature, we don't respond well to incremental change. You know, COVID had boom. The world was able to react overnight. Mm. Yep. You know, like literally when it was in our faces, that was it. You know, we went into action mode. The problem with climate change, you know, is, and you kind of nearly need to like suddenly, if this is the season where it goes, do you know what? That's it. Yeah. You know, we need to act now. So unfortunately, I just think human nature, we nearly need to be at that kind of stage, unfortunately, before we can actually start getting stuff done. Um, the tap could be dripping in the kitchen for ages. And the drip gets worse and you get used to the worst drip. And the drip gets steadily worse if it's a stream. And it's only when the whole faucet blows that sometimes the tap gets fixed. Whereas initially it should be when it starts dripping. And all right, that's probably the worst analogy in the world, but yeah, I'm trying to get my point, you know, but you know, that's it. We, we just, we, we put up with things. It's a bit like, for example, last year wasn't a particularly bad salmon season, but it was still 30% of what it was in the seventies, eighties. But you know, what? kind of like the dripping tap, bad and all as it was, we got used to it. But it's just when, when it all goes askew that we've got to act. Well, I have to say, chatting to Connor for this episode, I, he, yeah, he put it in stark enough terms that kind of made me sit up and go, holy shit, okay, okay, it's that bad. And yet, while we won't, like, while it's stark and sobering, it's not all gloom and doom. He does talk of, of projects that are possible and does offer, you know, does offer solutions to it, you know, both yeah. short term, medium term, and long term. So it's it's not all gloom and doom, but you know it's, it's as he says, it's got to be acted on now. Short term has to be done now. Sobering is the word I think to listen to, it, um, but it's the truth. Um, yep. So look, I think people will find this interesting and sobering as it is. So look, let's get back to Connor Arnold from the Blackwater, and I first asked him how the season has been so far. It's been absolutely abysmal. Um, there's no there's no sugar coating it. Um, we were estimating the runs up until two years ago to be about 30% of what we had in the 70s. And this year is down 80% on last year. How much can we put it down to weather conditions? Like it's too early to say in terms of the, like, give us your thoughts on it. I think it's a combination of everything. Um, increased sea temperatures, netting at sea, Netting in the estuaries, predation, you take your pick and it's all just come to a head. It's the perfect storm, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's just fallen off a cliff face down here. Uh, most of the country is the same, possibly not to the same extent, but following the same patterns. So it's, it's just... Like you, you said, know, 80%, 80% from last year. Yeah, yeah. And that was only... 30% of what we had previously. Like, so <laughs> that will give you a rough idea where we are. And basically, I mean, you could see it, Connor, you, you're, you're on the river. You're on the river all the time. The numbers aren't there, are they? No, 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 they're not there. Like, I mean, um, you spend a full day on the river guiding and you end up going over and above what you should be doing to try and get the clients to fish. 
And you could be from half eight, maybe half six on the river and see one, maybe two fish in good conditions. That's shocking. Right? See, at least now, Tom, I don't have to put it down to my skills why I'm not catching. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the fish well, aren't there. Like it's, it's just, listen, we can all do with excuses. And another one, in the, another one is always more than welcome. <laughs> but yeah, to be honest with you, Connor, I'm with you on that because as a guide myself, I know, I mean, when things are going right, guiding is one of the best, best jobs in the board you can do. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. When it's hard, I like what you say there, because you want to get the clients to fish. I mean, that's your job. That's that's what you're there for. And it's just so tough. It's so tough. And as you say, you're going above and beyond trying everything. Get it. But like, and that's why I asked you there were the numbers in the river. And, um, you know, I mean, I can hear what you're saying. You can try and har- as hard as you like. But, you know, if the fish aren't there, oh, it's tough. We touched on this last week, Tom. Do you remember we were saying about the, the marine, the heat wave that we had in the, in the waters? Yeah. Connor, you know, where it was like four or five degrees above temperature, where like the knock on effect for something like that has to be extreme, isn't it? I, I'm, I'm not sure I buy into that completely. Um, reason being sure could have an effect but i was in norway in june um reasonable water conditions uh i was on the orca for the week we were on it it's about 88 kilometers of fishable river it produced around about 100 fish for that week which is around about 1.2 fish per kilometer for the week okay same week last year was about 635 640 fish so Norway is following the same pattern. Scotland is following the same pattern. I was on the Spay in, in March, very same. Uh, like, all right, March was before the increase in sea temperatures, but still there was no fish. We were the same. Like, I'm not sure the exact timing of, of, of that warm sea current and when it started to have uh, an effect on the southwest coast, but um, up until May, there was nothing. There was nothing in the river. Yeah. Could be a contributing factor, but it's not it's not to be all and end all, you know. Yeah, but I think you said it at the start, it seems to be an amalgamation or you know, all the yeah. factors have just sort of come together. Yep. And uh, yeah. Yeah, but like such a drop off, like you're saying, like take the, the orca, like the example you're saying. From one season to another, just to go literally fall off a cliff edge. It's just nature doesn't work like that generally. Like that's the scary yeah. thing. No, no, like, I mean, since time began, and bear in mind that salmon are on this planet longer than we are, everything goes through a cycle. You will have good years, you will have bad years, but, I mean, not to this variation. I'm I'm clutching at straws, Connor, and I was thinking, okay, the grill's run is just delayed. Am no, I, I don't am see I it just... <laughs> sorry, bur- sorry to burst your bubble there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, today's, the today's the 2nd of August. Yeah. Listen, the way the seasons are going <laughs> nowadays, dates yeah. mean nothing with seasons nowadays. Mm. No, I, I, I very much doubt it. Um, we've had loads of water, probably even too much water for the last six weeks. Yeah. Um, and when, when the first flood came, we were all kind of rubbing our hands yeah. and licking our lips and saying, here we go, this is yeah. it now, and we're off. And we had about a week of what I would consider should be normal fishing after a dry spell, reasonable fishing. And the run of grills lasted for six days, not six weeks. And direct, that was so, it, God. 
after the six days. That was it. Like it was about six days of a reasonable run of fish, and that is it. And what we have now, we have few residents in the pools, and we have an odd few fish traveling through, and still really good water conditions. So that's uh, as far as I can see. I can't. I can't see how it's going to improve for the rest of the season. That's it. That's it. Our back end run is gone with six or seven years. Yeah. Yeah. Does a season like this season make you kind of look to the future and or what the hell? Yeah, yeah, it does. It'll make you wonder. All right. Um, I'm slightly different to a lot of uh, a lot of the other guides in the river in the sense that I have another business as well. It's kind of uh, I know we're going to going to get to this a little bit later on, but I'm involved in the buildings as well. So I'm, I'm a carpenter by trade. So I'm I'm still actually a site foreman on a couple of sites as it is. So I'm not completely dependent on it. So I, I I can afford to take it, but there's an awful lot of people depending on it um, completely, and mm-hmm. they're really hanging in there by their fingernails. Um, are you seeing the same kind of despair say in Scotland? You know the the like I know I know well, we've been talking about it for years in terms of the the but is it really this year people are really now starting to panic? Yeah, yeah, it, it even happened a few years ago on the Aberdeenshire D. Um, people were blaming Storm Frank for um, absolutely ripping up the reds and stuff like that. We should have seen the results uh, of improved spawning since, and it hasn't happened. Um, what you're seeing is what was traditionally uh, a beast that had be looked after by a resident ghillie. Um, that's starting to be weeded out. As the ghillies are retiring, they're not being replaced, and you're very much just having... Um, the run of it and freelance yourself. There's no guides or no gillies being employed by estates anymore. It's just not feasible for them. So it's, it's, it's a pattern, it's a trend, unfortunately. I'm really struggling to find any positive. So I'm not blaming you, Connor. Like, it's, it's <laughs> like I love salmon fishing. Yeah, and, you do. But when you talk about years like seasons like this season, it's like, where do you go from here kind of thing? Like, isn't it? Right. Okay. We get to the positives, right? Go on, right. Okay. Go on. Go on. Up We're eight the minutes end. in. Let's <laughs> up the hour. So, so, so typical Irish, right? We're about 20 years behind everybody else. First of all, we'll go to Denmark. Okay. A couple of rivers in Denmark. Skirn is a famous one. I know they did a, a complete um, habitat restoration and um, rerouted the river and put it back into its uh, original, um, original, uh, original path. Then they did use hatcheries on it, but they weaned them off. So they found the original stock. It took them about four years to do it. Um, they completed the project 2007, I think. Um, and in less than 10 years, it went from returning 150 fish to about 1,200 fish. So that's no, they've weeded that off. They have done it in other rivers in Denmark as well with and without hatcheries and increased the numbers of fish returning and the catch rates. Um, they've done it by doing a lot of measures and too many to go into right now, but basically you have predation, you have pretty much complete cessation of commercial netting. Um, you have all these factors and, and they've shown it works. Mm. They've shown it works. Um, We've kind of been lagging behind here, but I, I, I've started something. I, I'll go into it a little bit later on, which you hear as to what we need to do and how we need to do it. Um, but more success stories, the Baltic salmon. I know you could argue they're not genetically identical to the Atlantic, but they're as similar as you get. 
Um, they changed the whole netting system and, and rules and regulations in the Baltic Sea. There was an awful lot of paper milling industries um, around the Baltic, pumping heavy metals into the Baltic. It was one of the most polluted seas in the world. And because it's so kind of relatively small, it was very concentrated. And the Baltic salmon were in serious trouble. So they started to look after things. And again, around about 2008, they started recording numbers of fish. One river in particular that they do a lot of surveys on is the Torne. Now, it's right up the north of Sweden. It forms the border of uh, Sweden and Finland for, for, I think it's around 60 kilometers or 80 kilometers or more, maybe. But anyway, it went from having a run of 10,000 fish in 2008 to up to between 90 and 100,000 fish the last few years. Okay. All of these measures that they do, we could implement the same thing and we could see a turnaround, possibly not to the same extent, but it would definitely give us a buffer zone to work on more long-term measures, you know? And those 90,000, were they primarily like native stock? They were There's in- no hatcheries on those rivers. Yeah. That's completely yeah. wild breeding. Um, and the other thing is, it's a laser that goes across the river that basically is your fish counter. It only records fish over 70 centimeters. And everything they did, essentially, it's not like they were. it was changes out in the ocean. This was changes in the rivers and in the estuaries and close to shore. Like everything was within, you know, touching distance, so to speak. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Habitat restoration, um, really big cutback on commercial netting. It's, it hasn't stopped, but it has cut back something colossal on what it used to be. So they were able to curtail all all of the the inhibiting factors and um, put the good stuff to work. Like, I mean, some of those rivers are five and 600 kilometers long on the main stem, never mind the tributaries. Like, so the the amount of spawning potential is huge. The Atlantic salmon, obviously, are up right off the Atlantic, right? In terms of off Mm -hmm. Greenland. I'm trying to get at, is there a temperature difference that we're looking, that there's something more about the Atlantic as opposed to the Baltic um, feeding grounds that's going on? There's a couple of things. First one is the Baltic, as I said, is, is, is fairly small as oceans go. So that their migratory pattern and migratory route would be, you know, far more confined than the Atlantic. So they wouldn't have the same strain on the migratory paths as the Atlantic. Um, the other thing is, oh, I'm not a scientist and I couldn't swear to this, but being a smaller sea it would be more susceptible to, to temperature increases. You know, mm-hmm. from from land and stuff like that. Now, that's just a guess. I'm, I'm not 100 percent on that, but um, it's the migratory path that the Atlantic salmon has to take that leaves it exposed to an awful lot um, from netting on the feeding grounds to netting on migratory paths to netting yeah. in the estuaries. Like so, it's obviously there. It's far easier to control commercial activity within the Baltic Sea than it is on the absolutely. high oceans. Absolutely. You know? yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, that's that's so, very interesting. Sorry, just, I, Connor, that river that you said that went from 10,000 to 90,000, mm. which country is it in? It forms the border between Sweden and Finland, but most of it is actually in Sweden. Right. That's really interesting. That is a phenomenal increase. Yeah, a, a lot of rivers up there have actually seen the same increase, but we can kind of use the Thorne as an example because of the counter that's on it. Mm. Um, it's it's neighboring river, it's sister river, Calix has seen uh, a similar increase as well. And a few more rivers, um, Biska is another one that has had a fairly substantial increase mm-hmm. in, in Baltic salmon. So, like, you know, that there are positives out there. 
But these fishery policies were introduced by the Swedish and the Finnish governments, um, obviously a much more enlightened approach. But yet at the same time, we're seeing like if the likes of Norway was, I'd be really interested if the likes of Norway was to follow similar, would we see a similar? It'd just be really interesting in terms of one country can do it, the second country can do it. Could you see another country doing it and similar effects, you know? And you've mentioned Denmark again as well. That wasn't that one as well. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Norway have started with some measures. Um, they're already looking at um, the fish farms going inland in the closed containment units. Yeah. Um, that's that's a big thing. Um, that's been trialed all over the world. Um, and fine, it's an industry. Okay. Um, personally, I wouldn't be eating it. But um, if you want to have that industry, put it in the tank, put it inland. You can filter the water. It doesn't interfere with another industry. Why would you sacrifice one industry to create another one? Just doesn't make sense. It's it's that's probably not as cost effective to set up, but once it's set up, I'm sure there'll be subsidies from these multi-million dollar companies that could do this um, and, and set it up inland and take away the open cage farms because they're just a nightmare. And everybody recognizes it. There's no denying it. Absolutely none. Well, it's a bit like I, I compared to like the cigarette industry. Everybody knew everybody knew it caused cancer, but uh it's the same, but I mean all these things are uh, you know it's up to the powers that be to kind of implement these things um by by recommendations. And like I say, it's not like we're <laughs> leading the way. All this has been done in other countries, all we have to do is follow suit. That's really interesting about Sweden. Um, I'd, I'd love to do an episode on that sometime, Tom, just to delve yeah, into that. Yeah, that would be really nice to get on that. Uh, just there, um, so like you said, we're about 20 years behind. Do you see a willingness for the powers of be to, to, let's say, incorporate some of them, the measures that have happened in the Scandic countries? I hope so, is the answer. Um, recently, um, I started a little thing. I started sending an email. I, I I drafted an email highlighting the major uh, factors contributing to the, the decline in numbers, um, in my opinion. And I sent it to a number of politicians. I also sent it to IFI. Um, and I had a meeting with Minister Malcolm Noonan as a result. Now, it wasn't just me. There were six of us at the meeting. Um, a couple of anglers from the Noor, a couple of anglers from the Shore, um, myself and another man from Blackwater. But I have support from all over the country, guys that have been on your podcast before, Paddy McDonald, Gareth Grock, who really big on board with this as well, guys from Kerry, the Slaney River Trust, we're all on board with this. This went to Malcolm Noonan, and the upshot is he did not realise, the exa- he was aware of the situation, but didn't realise the extent of the problem. So from the feedback I got from the politicians, none of them were really aware of it. So this is suddenly kind of blown up and kind of gone, whoa, this is actually really the extent of it. I don't believe so, that for a minute, no offense. Uh, look, I don't know. This is this is the feedback they were trying to give me. So the upshot is we have a meeting. We're, we're promised a meeting in Leinster House in September with Eamon Ryan um, and, and see where it goes from here. Um, the recommendation was to draw up a, three, a three-stage plan, a document with a three-stage plan, short-term measures, medium-term measures, and long-term measures. I mean, if we can implement the short-term measures, hopefully it'll give us a buffer zone to work with the broodstock 
uh, keep them there until we can put in the more long-term stuff and, and, and look to the future big time. If we don't do it, uh, if you don't do the short-term measures this year, I think the whole thing is going to fall on its face. Like, I mean, the last, the last figures that I have from a survey in 20, 2012 from the Irish Tourism Board that angling in Ireland was worth 280 million to the economy. Okay. And in the same year, there was over 406,000 people involved in recreation angling in Ireland. Now, if that's not worth saving, I don't know, I'll throw my hat at it. Just out of interest, uh, you'd wonder why it's taking anglers, instructors, guides like yourself to be bringing this to the notice of government politicians when there's dedicated bodies set up and paid for with multi, multi-million euro budgets? Yeah, you would wonder. I can't answer that. Um, but that is a question that has bothered me for quite some time. The other question I wanted to ask you on that as well is, did you get a hearing with anyone outside of the Greens, i.e. FF or FG? No. Who, of course, would be more associated with other lobby groups, shall we say, in the Irish economy. So, So what I'm trying to say is without input or insights or support from FF, FG, those, that side of the table, I wonder how impactful it, any measures or proposals would actually be. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, Eamon Ryan is the man that signs off on the commercial headquarters. He is Green Party leader with, uh, well, former leader with, um, Oh, can I put this now? He signed off on an increase in the net quotas for the Blackwater this year, even though the catch returns were declining. Uh, I'd very much like that to be explained. Yeah. And, you know, I'd also, if you could ask him as well, why the government policy of developing and continuing to develop fish farms is a stated policy of the government. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like I said, there's... There is a load of stuff in that. I can, I can actually send you the email. You can have a look at it yourself. Um, I'm I'm just, I'm not a scientist. I have no political affiliation. I'm a casting instructor and I'm a fisherman. I run a business on the river. I've been salmon fishing for oh, 34 years, all my life. And I can't sit by and watch the whole thing go down the pen. And I have to tell you something. I don't know. What do you do? I have a 10-year-old son over there in the house. And he's he's happy out. He goes trout fishing. He goes salmon fishing with me. I want him to be catching salmon when he's my age. I don't want to be the generation that sits by and lets this go down. Connor, fair, fair play to you for taking it you know, on, upon yourself to start. You know what I mean? Because so many people just throw their hands up in the air. Myself and Tom, we've always said it on the, the podcast. I was like, what can people do? What can you do? You know, but the very fact that I actually said, you know what? I'm going to write a letter. I'm going to at least shout from the rooftops here. And look, if it can get noticed, it's a start, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, uh, we've only touched on some of the figures from elsewhere. Um, as you probably know, I work with Loop Tackle, a Swedish tackle company. And we have quite a few scientists on board. Um and I have access to an awful lot of information and statistics 
from other rivers, Canada as well. The owner, Chris, lives in Canada and, and he took on a project over there and the Hunt River and stuff like that. And we just went catch and release and they watched the, the numbers increase there as well. Um, so I have access to an offline information that's valid to us here. And, and I'm only chomping at the bit to bring it to the table. Yeah, just talking, hearing you there, just hearing you talk there, Connor, it's, uh, it strikes me that you hit a tipping point. You know, it, you know that you were going along and like myself, as I said, going through a couple of seasons, tough season guiding, but then you get a slight increase the next year, you know, and you go and you're sort of going, but that suddenly you just reached this point, which is probably, you know, in the last year or so, and you just realized, no, got to do something. I can't stand back and just watch this disappear. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. Yeah, um, I think COVID gave us a little bit of hope. We saw the increase in the runs um, for two years during COVID. And there's no denying it. There was a marked increase in the runs. Um, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that there was no trawlers, super trawlers, netsmen, nothing out. They were all locked up at home. Fish had a, a free passage back. And they came back. And this year is the first real year that everything else has been back up and working again. And suddenly it's fallen off a cliff face. And, and for me, that was just right. That's it. We have to do something here because there's not much left in it that it can take. I was chatting to a fella earlier. Um, it's just related to salmon fishing. Um, and we were just saying, like, obviously salmon anglers care about this, right? because it's a sport and, you know, we care about the fish and the environment and all that kind of stuff. But we're saying, obviously, you know, because salmon are such, you know, they're a bit of the kind of canary in the mine kind of, so to speak, in terms of, you know, they run the gamut of climate change. And it's interesting, like, you know, what you're saying about the politicians saying they weren't aware, you know, of the problems of it. And yet, the very fact that there is such a problem should be the alarm that's sounding beyond the fishing community. You know, if, if people knew what we knew, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say, would they be more alarmed? You would hope so. So anyway, the, the gist of the conversation was how can we, how the hell do we get the message that we're, we're aware of beyond, to beyond the salmon angling community? Because that's maybe where the only place where you're actually going to affect real, real change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, publicity, I suppose, is publicity and education is the big thing. Um, short term, what, what you'll be looking at will be documentaries, either freelance or, or by state TV channels. Um, get it out there. I mean, even in, I, I live in a little village called Killavullen, North Cork. It's a small village. Okay. Uh, we have a club here. We've got a mile and a half of water. Usually we would be catching, we, we can catch fish right from the world go in February, but It'd be maybe the third week of February would be kind of when you'd start. It was the second week in May this year when the first fish was caught, right? And when the people down the pub on Saturday night heard, oh, geez, such a guy caught the first fish. That, what? The first fish? Like, even the local people here didn't realize, like, yeah. you know? So you're dead right. Um, things need to be expanded and blown up and put into people's faces to make everybody aware of exactly what we're losing here. Like, As a planet, we're sleepwalking ourselves into extinction. You look at what's happening this summer in terms of the heat waves, you know, in terms of the wettest, wettest months, we've had the hottest days globally on record. Mm -hmm. And yet we're, the emissions are still increasing year on year. 
like it's kind of like how much more do we need to actually see like we're all aware of it. we all know what's happening and yet we're kind of going ah sure you know it'll i'm sure it'll change one of these days kind of thing and then it's too <laughs> i suppose what i'm trying to say is salmon is just one small part of this and if you look at the bigger picture where we still haven't panicked enough if we can't even grasp it to panic enough at a macro level my concern is salmon are so far down the the pecking order it's a bloody hard sell like and i don't mean that like i mean we can keep fighting it, but i mean from a general public perspective yeah yeah there's there's no doubt we have our work cut out for us um but again well, back to this thing what do you do you sit around you go to the pub on saturday night and talk to your mates and say cheers Sam fishing is crap this year, lads, isn't it? Ah, well, we'll have another point. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, well, so, that's ge- yeah. that is generally what we do, though. I, I know, that's yeah. what I'm saying. So that, yeah, that, that's generally what we do. But, like, yeah. I mean, and that's why what you're doing is is brilliant. Yeah. Because it's you're not just sitting down in the pub going, do you know what, it was the second week of May before we had our first salmon. You know, yeah. we've got to highlight it. And people will say, and, you know, people, oh, well, like, you know, what, what are they going to do? You know, what are the politicians going to do? You know, nothing's going to be done. But you know what? If you don't highlight it, if you don't go to them, if you don't get other people involved, if you don't get active, then you can't really say much. You know, you've got to try. Absolutely. You yeah. have to try. You have to endeavor to do it. I, I think I was doing a diary about 10 years ago. Um, I was on the drows, actually, and uh, I was up in Dundagall. I was on the Finn. I was chatting to a fellow from Fista. This was 10 years ago. like, And he told me a great story, which was that this Spanish tourist comes over. He says he flies into the Shannon, into Shannon, rents the car with his family. and They drive up the West Coast and they spend a lot of time up around Donegal, around the Finn. And he said he didn't go fishing. What he did was he, want, he was a big, passionate advocate for salmon. Um, and what he did was he wanted to point out to his son, that's a salmon. That's a wild Atlantic salmon because they didn't have them in Spain anymore and Noel from Fist at the sense that I hope we're not getting to that stage where we'll talk to our kids about well, I remember what a salmon used to be let me bring you to Iceland or and I'll show you what a salmon is and I thought that was a very you know apocryphal story but the more we're talking like especially like this you're kind of getting like and you mentioned your kid they're kind of like yeah you kind of get to that stage where you're kind of going I'll, I'll tell you what a salmon used to be like and that's this yeah. that's the scary thing. Like, what is that Indian saying? You know, it's only when the last fish is gone, the last tree is cut. I wonder yeah. where it's all about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're 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 dead right. Um but 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 um me being a salmon anger, I'm the eternal optimist, right? There's <laughs> there's a, an awful lot that we can do, and there's an awful lot of stuff that we can do immediately that's within our grasp to do. Okay. Now, this is a touchy subject. Um, I would be recommending a complete cessation of all commercial netting in Ireland. There is no river in this country that has a harvestable surplus that can justify commercial netting. I would also recommend catch and release. Okay? I know a lot of people are going to jump on and up and down now and say, geez, it's not the anglers, right? It's not. I, I believe it's not the anglers that are responsible for the position we're in. But what? we have a direct impact on the spawning stock that are in the river. So I think anglers should lead by example. Go catch and release. If we can get rid of the nets as a result of that, like I said earlier, 
that gives us a buffer zone to try and get more long-term uh, measures implemented and working. It, it, it has, there are things that we can directly control. Okay, predation is another one. Fish farms is a little bit more difficult. That's the you kind of midterm projects we're looking at. So, but we have stuff that we can do immediately to have an effect on the fish that are actually still in the river. Like salmon are, they're a magnificent fish. They are very well equipped to adapting. Um, they've, they've adapted through an awful lot of stuff before and you give them the chance to do it again. A couple of those examples I gave you earlier in Denmark and Sweden, same story. If you give them a chance, they, they'll adapt and, and they'll survive. Okay, so it, 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 there, is, there is light at the end of the tunnel. It's just a case of do we want to do it or not? Without reaching, reaching for the whiskey and the revolver, um, <laughs> we often f- do not feel that it's reached, and Tom, you mentioned the tipping point, which is you almost get the sense of no matter what we do here, this side of that, what's going on out in the oceans, I know we have to try. Look, and I agree with you, I do have to try, but you nearly kind of feel like, Jesus, are we, uh, are we trying to stop the tide, like, you know? Yeah, um, we, we, we definitely, we have to tackle what's going on in the oceans. Like, I mean, all I'm saying is with commercial netting and the catch and release, that's the short term. I would love for the river to be in a position that you could harvest a few fish. I'd love to, I, I've, I've taken fish myself. I haven't done it in a few years, but I've killed enough of them in my time. Um, and I'd love for the river and all the rivers in the country to be healthy enough that we could actually take fish. And I'd like for us to get back there. But at the moment, I'm on the river every day, I can tell you, there's, there's not a harvestable surplus. They're not there at the moment. Until to such time as there is, can't justify taking fish and we shouldn't be. You know? um, so as regards the sea, that would be one of the long-term measures that we're looking at that I spoke about for that document. Um, you have that super trawler that was out there yeah, yeah. earlier on in the year, capable of processing 250 tons of fish a day. It, the same vessel has been banned from numerous countries because of the bycatch that it produces. Yeah. I mean, mother of God. A question, and I'm not too sure because I'm not, fully aware of the answer it's naturally that's why i'm asking the question but let's say these super trawlers let's say on the on the feeding grounds of our atlantic salmon and that's open waters it's so basically it's a free-for-all if they if they locate the salmon there they can they can harvest them can't they yeah and they did um i I can't remember what year it was probably 20 30 years ago um was Ori Vigfuss and, um, and, and the, rest of his, the rest of his association did fantastic work in stopping the netting off of Greenland and protecting that area up there. We should be looking at something similar um, as regards migratory routes. We all know, we can look, surveys, tag fish, that we already know most of the routes that salmon take. Okay. There's a little app you get in your phone called Ship mm. Locator. Okay, it tells you exactly what vessel is where. Every one of them has a little black box in now for fear that they're lost, you know, for rescue missions and so on. You can click on, they all have different color triangles. You can see which one is which. It's very easy once you go to European level, go, go above that again. We're talking about international European waters. If you want to implement the measures, the migratory paths to make it secure, 
you can police it, no problem. It's not rocket science. Like it just needs to get through to that stage. But at you know, the it, moment, it, it, at the moment, yeah, at they the moment, can. yeah, absolutely, yeah. And somebody, I said that to somebody once, and they said, "Oh no, they do not do that." I said, "But sure, why wouldn't they?" Oh, you, they show up on markets somewhere. That was the answer I was given, and right. I said, "Well, sure." The and my only reply to that was, "They could sell all over the world." Yeah, you know, because they're factory ships and they can go anywhere. But um, you know, because but I've always I've always thought that these factory fish, if they find the feeding grounds, um, can just funnel them up like they do any other catch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, again, I haven't been on one of these ships, but this is anecdotal stuff. But to the best of my knowledge they can adjust the angle of the nets to go through whatever depths they want to go through. They could be looking for something, a different species of fish and something else pops up on the sonar or, and, and just change the angle and off you go, you're straight into the next target. It, mm. There's no escape. It's, it's live sonar. It's not, it's not reflective. So they're, they're seeing exactly what they're over. Um, so they can adapt and change immediately. And, and, and that's it. And they can hoover up quantities of fish that is not sustainable just can i ask you uh kind of like do you find have you found this season like say people ringing up looking to do a bit of fishing are you kind of going well you can come down it's a hard balancing act isn't it between obviously people want to get out but you know and you, you know they need to know the truth in terms of look it's tough fishing you well know. You, you, you can ask anyone anyone that knows me or comes down fishing um so I have my own beat. I have one beat myself and I do the day tickets on three more beats belong to Ballyhooley Castle. So I have six and a half miles of the black water, mostly double bank. Um, uh, it's Middle River. Um, so we get going round about Paddy's Day realistically, um, usually. Fellas ring you up and you just say the river's low or the river's high or river's in great nick, not many fish about you know, tell them the truth because if you tell them, oh, geez, yeah, I had three <laughs> fish yesterday or something. I had four the day before. You got to come down. They come down, spend the day, don't even see a fish. You know, they won't be back in a hurry. Mm. At least I'd like to think that if you tell them the truth, at least they have the, the respect for it. Like, just, just tell them the truth. It is what it is. Are people still coming out, like, you know, or have you seen yeah. a noticeable drop in terms of people? Yeah, there staying? is a drop. There's no doubt about it. There is a drop. Um, there are still people that just love to get out and fishing for an awful lot of people is headspace. Um, it's their way of getting away, like two hours drive from Dublin. You know, plenty of people will come down and you just spend the day on the bank of the river. A fish is a bonus. Now, you'd still want to be getting one every now and again. Yeah, but uh, it, it is. It is. Still, there are still people coming for headspace, and and there's still people. There's another. There's another kind of niche of people that will be traveling in destinations um, that will come down. Um, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm a fly casting instructor. Um, I'm a map guy, qualified fly casting instructor, and actually the teaching side of things has gotten very busy, and I've been able to to kind of morph more into the teaching rather than just the guiding. So that that that's actually working out not too bad. And like you can see behind me here, I don't know if the listeners can't see it, but um, I have uh, a shop here as well. I have a, a loop field center. So it's kind of like a franchise for loop. Um, it's the only one in the Republic. There's one in the North as well. Well, I have to keep that going as well. 
Um, and that, that works well with the teaching. And also trips as well, Connor, aren't they like to be part of your, um, your armory as well? Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That started a good while back. Um, there's a friend of mine and he brought me over to Sweden. He went over there to fish the, uh, with the Irish team in 2005. And he loved the place so much he bought a house. So he dragged me with him then a couple of years later. And we went over and we started fishing some of the rivers in middle Sweden. And I ended up going up north and the, the pictures of these huge Baltic salmon. And that's where it started. That's also where the whole loop t- uh, thing started. And um, I ended up, I don't know, 10 or 12 years going to going to the north of Sweden. Um hosting trips and guiding up there in Lapland. Um, and then it kind of one thing led to another. I was doing Scotland as well at the same time. Scotland worked out pretty well at the start of the season before we'd start here at home. So I used to do, I used to do trips to the D every year, um, just take groups. I used to host and guide myself a lot before. Now I'm kind of just light hosting. I go with the groups and I fish with the groups because life is too short. You got to fish got to fish these destinations. Don't you, Tom? If you hadn't said life's too short to the end of what you're just doing now, I would have said, Connor, life's too short. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you might as well. Yeah, yeah. So, then it started going to Norway as well. Fished north of Norway up in Finnmark. I was in western Norway this year. Um, Iceland as well. Um, just just handy groups. An awful lot of these guys would be repeat customers. Um and you consider them friends. It's like going fishing with your friends now at this stage, you know. Where's your favourite place, Connor? I've been lucky enough to catch a good few salmon in my life. Um, but the one thing we don't have in Ireland anymore are big fish. I love Sweden. Um, it's a really tough place to guide because you're not going there to bag up. You're going there with the chance, a realistic chance of a 30-pounder. Um, for very cheap money. Now it's off the beaten track. You're in the middle of nowhere in an awful lot of it, especially in the north. Um, and it's just, you will see fish. They're extremely hard. They're even harder than the Atlantic salmon to get them to take, believe it or not. But, Are they actually? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but they're a peculiar kind of a fish. They're far more aggressive when they do take. And you have no business going there with less than 400 meters of backing on your reel. <laughs> so I'm quite happy to hunt these guys, um, hook, I don't know, a couple, three, four, hook half a dozen in your week and maybe land one or two or three maybe if, you're, if you have a good week. That's, that's realistic. What kind of um, size? Kind of? Size, the average size would be close to 20. Um with lots of fish between 20 and 30, number of fish over 30. And then the really big ones, um, you get kind of over the 40, they're extremely hard to land because the rivers are so wild and so fast flowing. You're fighting the river as much as the fish. And, and for me, that's part of the challenge. It's, it's the top of the food chain for salmon fishing, in my opinion. It doesn't get any more difficult, but it also doesn't get any more rewarding. Sounds absolutely fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and how come it's kind of gone under the radar, Sweden, like in terms of salmon fishing? Because you always hear Norway, obviously. Yeah, it, it, like I said earlier on, it's only recently that the numbers have been building there. Um, that chap that I went over with first when we went up to Jockfall up the north, I think we were... If not the first, then definitely some of the first Irish that had ever been up there. 
And you look at these rivers, some of them are 300 yards wide. And you stand on the bridge and every 30 seconds, there's, there's fish pitching in the pool below you. And you're looking at these things. <laughs> you, it's been a long time in Ireland looking for one of these, I can tell you. And you, you see them all over the place and it's like, oof. But they, there's, there's an awful lot of public fishing in Sweden. There's not a lot of private fishing. So there's not really an external market as such. Um, if you go there, an awful lot of the time you're sharing with the local anglers, and the local anglers are very much kind of, I suppose they're like Kerrymen, really, they keep it to themselves. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's, that's why it kind of fell under the radar, I suppose, really. Can I ask you one thing? Yep. If you saw Baltic salmon beside an Atlantic salmon, could you tell the difference? Yeah, I could at this stage, but yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But you'd, for anyone that hasn't fished for Baltic salmon or even held one in their hands, it, it's extremely hard. Um, they look very similar. The only things I would say, the spots are bigger. There's, there's more spots on the Baltic. And when the Baltic are really fresh, they're green on the back. You know, there's a, there's a green hue on the back of them. Um, also, the cockfish that come in, the Baltic fish especially, they have a more pronounced kipe even when they're really fresh coming in. Um, also tend to be more thick-set, really, really thick-set fish. They're, they're, they're not long and slim. They're all really more like tuna, really. Wow. So there, there, there are differences. Oh, their teeth as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know the way you, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. You know the way you get a kelp's the kelp going back in March and you're taking the hook out and you end up reefing your finger off the teeth. Well, Baltic salmon are a bit like that in June. We've touched on your career, but where did you grow up? How did you get into fly fishing? What's your... Well, you're not from Kerry anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I I definitely won't be moving there now either. (laughs) I'll have to tell you my story about the very first time I fished the lawn, but that's another time. (laughs) Let's just say it ended up in a court case with other anglers. Nothing to do with me, like literally. And it was like something from the field. But anyway, that's That's another... that's a conversation for off air. I think yeah, there is. That's another story. <laughs> and this is my first. This is my first time fishing in Kerry. Like I ran out of the place. Like. Sorry, on the coast side, it can't get any worse than you. <laughs> Sorry, God. um, yeah. So I'm I'm local here in Kilbullen. I'm born and raised in the area. Uh, my home place is four miles from where my house is now. Uh, where I am now, I'm about four hundred yards from the river. Um, so I grew up here. Uh, started off trout fishing and stuff like that when I was younger. Did a lot of the, the competition stuff on the rivers. Um, got my first salmon when I was 10. Um, and I spent my summers at it. And my mother would be from Dromore West in County Sligo. So I, I spent two months of my summer as a child when I was in school going up fishing the Eski and the Moy as well. So I would have spent a lot of time up there. Um, but uh, yeah, so. I suppose my summer holidays from school were pretty much working on the local farm and onto the river then afterwards. We had to cycle down. I was about, I suppose, three, three and a half miles from the river. You'd cycle down, go trout fishing, I suppose, till midnight maybe, jump on the bike and cycle home again. You couldn't do it now. Yeah, uh, not not for kids anyway. But uh, yeah, one thing led to another, and the salmon kind of took over when I was fifteen or sixteen. I just just got really into it, and um, 
it was like everybody else, it was a numbers game at that stage and it was all methods and you just had to get fish, had to get fish. Um, and then like that, it, it changes over time. Um, I mentioned I was, I'm a carpenter by trade, but when the arse fell out of the economy in 2007, uh, I joined Dole Q for about six weeks. I couldn't hack it. I says, there has to be more to, to life than this crap. So uh, I went self-employed um, and I started guiding with Blackwater Lodge and uh, went about doing my exams and got my APCOI qualification and started to progress at that. And I said, I want to try this. But the carpentry has kind of kept going, ticking away in the background. And that's the way it progressed, really. Just just childhood childhood obsession turned into a trade. There you go. And it's funny, isn't it? Like life slams a door shut in your face in 2008 and, you know, unknowns to you, it actually opened up a whole other pathway. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, sometimes the open door isn't there, isn't too easy to see, but you just got to keep looking. And the one thing, and I'd say, Tom, you see this yourself. Um, if you're involved or if you have the interest in like this fishing guiding and, and you start at it and it whets your appetite, it's very hard to leave it. Mm. Very hard to leave it. It's a way of life. You're not, you're not going to get rich at it. You're not going to get anywhere near rich at it. But if you can make enough to get by, you're happy and you're happy doing what you love. Yeah. And you say you're enjoying the guiding. And I enjoyed the guiding. I remember talking to another lad here who boats as well local fella and he said to me and do you get that do you get that buzz or the the the, the rush of excitement when the client gets the fish i said yeah i do he says yeah i i, I get that yeah. and i remember thinking that, well that's what keeps you through and i presume you get it when your client gets into a fish absolutely yeah absolutely and especially that's, a first ever oh god yeah yeah or if it's been tough whatever and the next thing they're in a yeah. fish and it's lovely if it's something you've done. Not all, it's not always that. Sometimes it's something they've done themselves. It's still great to be with somebody. And that rush, as you see the line shooting off, and they're in. So, yeah, yeah, it does. Here, Rosie, plus points. Excellent. <laughs> and actually, <laughs> thanks, Tom. Hey! <laughs> Connor, before we get to the end, there's one question that we want to ask you. We ask everybody, and you have been made aware of it. So, it's a question we ask everybody on the show. What has been your most memorable fish on the fly? I'm, I'm, I'm going to do a Paddy McDonald on it. Um, it's not one that I caught. No. Um, it was a client. Um, he was, there's a party that come over. They came over every year until COVID, and um, they haven't been since. But um, I'm not going to mention his name either, but the chap suffers from Parkinson's. And he was kind of keeping it at a level, but he'd have to take the, these, these, these little tablets there and he'd get kind of 20 minutes, half an hour. And there was one day, he was over in September, he was over his wife and uh, a couple that they were friendly with. And I put him in at the island at the top of Bridgetown. Now, the river was carrying a bit of water, so I had to stay with him. And he hooked the fish, but he was coming to the end of the 20 minutes, the half an hour. And this thing was into double figures. I swear to God, if if that probably was the start of the balding process, I can tell you. <laughs> I didn't know what was going to happen, which was going to go first to fish for him. I, I had him in the river and I propped him up and I brought him into the bank 
And he'd lean back with holding the rods to try and get the fish's head up in the current. I was ringing his wife and she was coming up. But we landed the fish. The fish was about 13 or 14 pounds. Um, it was the biggest fish he ever caught in the fly. And the man pretty much sat down with a smile on his face for the rest of the trip. The photograph is actually still in a hotel local here as well. Um, it was the biggest, like I said, it was the biggest fish he ever caught in the fly. But it was the whole scenario, I'd say... He's only caught maybe three or four since. So, yeah, it's just to see the man facing a battle like Parkinson's and, and still have the determination to go out and fish and get a fish like that. Uh, is, the achievement for him is fantastic. That's fantastic. And it's gas that I actually mentioned about what guiding is before, because I didn't know you were going to say that about the fish, but, you know, it's the buzz you got from that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, brilliant! Absolutely brilliant. Yep. It means so many different things to to diff, to different people, you know. And I suppose yeah. as the guide, you get to see that side of it, like. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, Dara, and <laughs> hopefully, long may continue. Exactly, <laughs> and let us end on that. Long may yes. continue. Yes, yes. And uh, very best of luck with uh, knocking on the doors of the politicians let us know how the uh, the fight is going and if we can help to um, publicise anything as well about it we'll do we'll do lads thanks a million for the offer oh and Connor come here actually just before we let you go mm. people want to get in touch they want to book a bit of fishing how can they, what's the best way to get in contact with you uh, yeah just have my own website um, connorarnold.com check me out there um, you can message me on Facebook or, or give me a call my phone number is up on Facebook as well no problem great to have you on Connor. great to talk to you and really admire what you're doing perfect Cheers, Eds, and, and thanks for having me. Our thanks to Connor Arnold for joining us on the show. Don't forget to rate, review, and follow the Ireland on the Fly podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Plus, you can keep up to date on IrelandOnTheFly.com as well as on Instagram. And myself and Tom will be back with another episode about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. <laughs>